Welcome to a great day for hockey talk with your host, Paul Steigerwald. Paul Steigerwald standing by with a special guest. And let's go down the ladder right now and join him. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. This is episode number two of our podcast, and we're thrilled to have an opportunity to speak with the one and only Scotty Bowman. William Scott Bowman recently turned 85 years of age on September 18th. He holds the record for most wins in league history with 1,244 in the regular season and 223 in the Stanley Cup playoffs and ranks second all-time behind John Beliveau's 17 for most Stanley Cup victories by a player, coach, or executive with 14 Stanley Cup wins. He coached the St. Louis Blues, Montreal Canadiens, Buffalo Sabres, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Detroit Red Wings. He is currently the Senior Advisor of Hockey Operations, for the Chicago Blackhawks, and his son Stan is the general manager. Bowman is regarded as one of the greatest coaches in history in any sport, and there's no question that he was a major force in putting the Penguins on the hockey map in 1990. Oh, Lord Stanley, Lord Stanley, get me the brandy. Time to toast the great accomplishment. Back-to-back Stanley Cup titles for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mike Keenan congratulates Scotty Bowman, and the Penguins begin their celebration as the Blackhawks collect their thoughts. The hockey world was much smaller in 1950 than it is today. There were only six NHL franchises, but there were hundreds of amateur and minor pro teams in the United States and Canada. It's fascinating to track the career of Scotty Bowman as it intersected with so many people who have played significant roles in Pittsburgh Penguins history. It's said that there are only six degrees of separation between any of us, but in hockey for Scotty Bowman, it's more like two degrees of separation. Scotty was the product of the minor hockey program in Verdun, Quebec, a suburb of Montreal. He's fluent in French and English. As a teenager, he earned a spot at left wing for the Montreal Junior Canadiens, which was sponsored by the Montreal Canadiens and managed by the great Sam Pollock, the architect of the Canadiens' great five-time Stanley Cup championship teams of the 1970s. Scotty was playing in a game against a New York Rangers-sponsored team when he found himself on a semi-breakaway. A defenseman by the name of Jean-Guy Talbot chased him down and swung his stick, cracking Scotty over the head. He opened a large gash in his scalp, but contrary to popular lore, Scotty did not suffer a fractured skull, and it was not a career-ending injury. Scotty would play more games for the Junior Canadians and ultimately play a season for another amateur team called the Montreal Royals. His teammate, goaltender Eddie Johnston. Scotty later admitted that the head injury had affected his confidence. He stopped playing and turned his eye toward coaching in his early 20s. Sam Pollock was impressed with Scotty's acumen as a minor coach and eventually made him coach of the Junior Canadians. While there, Scotty got to know the legendary Canadians coach Toe Blake, who held the record for most Stanley Cup championships for 34 years. Meanwhile, a young player whose last name is synonymous with hockey, Craig Patrick, was playing hockey in Boston, where his father, Lynn Patrick, was the GM of the Bruins. Craig would move north to play for the Junior Canadians under Scotty Bowman. It was a high-powered amateur team. I enjoyed it uh, in the mid-60s, and and then... uh, all of a sudden, the league expanded, and, but uh, Lynn Patrick was with uh, with Boston and uh, uh, the Bruins, and, and he was the GM, I think, at the time, and and he 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 had a lot of foresight at the time, so he he, he sent his son, and also Larry Flo uh, came up. They were only 15 or not even 16, I don't think. Came up and played Junior B, and then eventually played on my team, uh, Canadian Juniors, Montreal Canadian Juniors. So. He saw a few games, and uh, we, we had a, we had a very good team. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, he he offered me a chance to. Uh, he wanted a young guy to go to St. Louis. He said, he said I would coach the second year, and I would be assistant uh, to him and learning the the NHL business. So uh, I went to uh, went to St. Louis, and uh, we we actually got. I went there in '66 because the, the league expanded. And we started the, the next season, 67. So I went a year before. And, uh, you know, I, I was planning on coaching the second year, and we got off to a kind of a rocky start. We were 4-10-2, and two, and he, he realized it was, it was going to take a lot of his managerial work as well. So he all of a sudden one night called me and said, uh, I'd like you to, to take over the team. I need more time to – because we were really struggling at the time uh, in the league. Uh, but – 
So that's how it started. While in St. Louis, Scotty acquired a defenseman by the name of Jean-Guy Talbot. So he obviously harbored no ill will. Talbot would eventually succeed Scotty behind the Blues bench after Scotty had left to coach the Montreal Canadiens. The first year in St. Louis, Scotty's team went to the Stanley Cup final, losing to none other than Toe Blake and the Canadiens. It would be the eighth and final cup win for Blake. Scotty's captain in St. Louis was Al Arbor, who would later be coaching the New York Islanders when they upset Scotty's Penguins in 1993. Arbor replaced Scotty behind the bench in St. Louis, but was fired after one season. He later coached the Islanders, of course, to four straight cups in the early 80s. After Scotty left Montreal, he went to Buffalo, where he was coaching GM of the Sabres for nine years. And while he was there, he drafted Tom Barrasso out of Acton Boxborough High School in Boston. The pick was the fifth overall pick in the draft. Unprecedented at that time. An American high school goalie picked fifth overall. After being fired in Buffalo, Scotty was working on TV for Hockey Night in Canada when Craig Patrick, his former junior player, called and offered him a job as director of player personnel in Pittsburgh in 1990. That's where Tom Barrasso was now the Penguins goalie. With the death of Badger Bob Johnson, Scotty ultimately became the Penguins coach for the 91-92 and 92-93 seasons. And at the trade deadline in 93, Scotty had a hand in trading Bob Airy to the Buffalo Sabres for defenseman Mike Ramsey, who Scotty had coached in Buffalo. Ramsey had also played under Craig Patrick when he was the assistant coach of the 1980 Miracle on Ice U.S. Olympic team. Airy would come back to haunt Scotty Bowman. Scotty left Pittsburgh to be the coach of the Detroit Red Wings in 93-94, and he was replaced in Pittsburgh by his old teammate with the Montreal Royals, Eddie Johnston. In the meantime, Bob Airy had gone to the San Jose Sharks, where he was the captain of the team that upset Scotty's heavily favored Red Wings in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, one of the most improbable first-round upsets in NHL history. A year later, Scotty was watching a late-night San Jose broadcast on his satellite dish when he learned that Airy was about to be traded by San Jose. Scotty made sure that the Red Wings were the team that acquired him. In Detroit, Scotty won three Stanley Cups as coach, and the third one in 2002 was his ninth, breaking the record of eight that had been held for over three decades by his mentor in Montreal, Toe Blake. There are some other connections of more recent vintage, Scotty's son Stan, who was named after the Stanley Cup, hired Mike Sullivan as development coach, and they won the Cup together in Chicago in 2015. In 2008 and 2009, Scotty was in the Red Wings front office when the Penguins and Red Wings met in the Stanley Cup final. It truly is an amazing web that was weaved with Scotty in the middle of it for some 50 years of hockey history. And now we continue our conversation with a living legend. Philadelphia Flyers started off the season very well. They were they were the cream of the crop, but they kind of leveled off. and And the standings in the first year were, were amazing because uh, Philly Philly ended up with, with not even 500 hockey, 74 games because we had to play the East a home and home. So uh, and they were much stronger than us. So Philly ended up with 73 points. Uh, we we were fortunate. We won our last two games of the season against Minnesota. We were out of the playoffs going into the last weekend. We won both games, uh, I think, to finish with uh, 69 points, uh, and get it, we snuck into third place. And uh, you know, it, it was really amazing because uh, we, I think it was first for Philadelphia, second was the L.A. Kings. We were we were uh, a third, and and I think I'm not sure uh, Minnesota was was fourth. And, and Pittsburgh was fifth, and they had 66 points. They were only they were like what seven points out of first place. There was only one of the six teams that was that was quite a way down. That was Oakland. But Jacques Plante was retired from the Rangers for three years, and we had a waiver draft after the first year. And he made a big announcement at the at the annual meeting that he wanted to re, he wanted to make a comeback. And of course. Uh, we we were fortunate, uh, you know, and I was with Lynn, and I said, we, Lynn, we got to take this guy on our first. He said, really, on the first pick? I said, yeah, we got to take him because he, he's the kind of guy, if he comes in, if he wants to do something, he can do it. And he had played a, a game for my junior team against the Russian team the year before. He came out of retirement. He he never played against the Russians, and he, he beat the Russians two to one in a in an amazing game. He beat the national team after you know being out for a couple of years. So we we got Jacques Plant, 
And uh, it was amazing that we took him in the first round because Ren Blair, who ran the Minnesota uh, team, uh, North Stars. And once the, was GM of the Penguins. Ren that's Blair. right. He was there and a little bit of an ownership. But anyways, Ren said, you guys are so lucky because we were going to take him. They had Cesar Maniego as their number one goalie. But so Plant and Hall came in and uh, – they kind of shared the job. Uh, Glenn, Glenn, Jock started fairly, not slowly, but we, we played Jock at home against the, the other West Division teams because the West Division teams, they, 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 it's amazing, but the forwards, they didn't have a, I mean, nobody had shots like the players today, but the West Division, uh, they used to call them pea shooters. <laughs> and they didn't have a lot of, a lot of guys, well, not, no Bobby Hulls and those kind of guys. But, we 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 had a great year. The uh, first year with uh, the both of them played, uh, we we had thirteen. They shared uh, thirteen shutouts, and twenty two one goal games. It was amazing that uh, that, that goaltending. I mean, I, I don't fool myself. I mean, we had a pretty good defensive team, but the goaltending we got that year. If you ever look at the records, we gave up one hundred and fifty seven goals in seventy. I think it was seventy six game schedule. Just a shade over two, and if you look back. The previous uh, lowest total was in was uh, like 1952. The, the the Red Wings gave up 131, but nobody else between 52 and 68, 69 uh, ever gave less than uh, 157. So it was amazing. Like I mean, you know, it's when you think about 35 games. If you score a goal, you get a point. You know. Well, I remember the rivalry between the Penguins and the Blues, and one thing that stands out, I wonder if you remember the night that your building was so loud. Oh, yeah. And that old St. Louis arena was awesome. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really noisy. Remember Red Kelly put the, yeah. the, the uh, he put earmuffs on all of his players because he didn't want them to hear the noise, and I, it was ridiculous. We have a picture of that, uh, that that I've seen many times, but I wonder what you thought of that when you saw Red doing that. Well, you know, he – uh, previous to that, uh, uh, or maybe even no, maybe later than that. Yeah, later than that. You know, when he went, I think he could end up coaching the Leafs, and and they they played a series against Philadelphia, and he did pyramids. Red put pyramids behind. Come on. The, oh yeah, right into Philadelphia because they they never won in Philadelphia. So he was quite a thinker, and uh, and and I, I remember I watch I saw that picture because one of the players I noticed with the earmuffs was Glenn Sather. And that was really, truly a home ice advantage you had in St. Louis, too. Uh, you know, just amazing. But remember the rivalry, Scotty? Uh, I remember the one night oh, yeah. uh, fans threw garbage on the ice at the Civic Arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure. and then the the barrels were all full of trash. And Bob and Barkley Plager tipped them oh. over and started spreading <laughs> the garbage all over the ice. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, sure. I mean, and what I remember about the Penguins more than anything is is uh, the, the 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 great young player Michel Briere. I mean, he was a late draft pick in the in the entry. Was he drafted in the entry draft or something? I don't yeah, know. he was. Yeah, he was. But but the entry draft was he was not like a third league. round pick. He wasn't. Yeah. He, yeah, and and you see, they had an entry draft that a lot of the good, a lot of the top players were already on list, so they weren't available. So. He was really a sleeper pick for Pittsburgh. Who I think I think Jack Riley, I think Jack Riley picked him. He did, and that was a. By the way, he had great numbers in junior. Like he was, oh. he was really a great junior player. So it's really yeah. amazing that he was passed yeah. over as much as he was. Yeah, they had some. You know, they and and they uh, like I, I remember that Penguin team because one of the, one of the players who developed it. See, we got some players from other. John Pronovo was one of the better picks. Uh, and he was a brother of all the Pronovals that played, uh, Marcel especially, uh, the, the the one that played in Detroit and Toronto. But uh, yeah, Jean Pronovo was a was a really good uh, good pick. Uh, they got him out of the Boston organization, you know. So, but uh, we had a lot of fun with Pittsburgh. That's right. So on to Montreal for you, Scotty, and uh, you know all those Stanley Cups and all those incredibly great players that you had a chance to coach. And I think about it, and I think. All right, so we've seen a lot of stars here, and every team that you uh, organization you've been involved in as a coach, Detroit, Chicago, mm-hmm. maybe only Buffalo would be the one you would say didn't have you know just a cavalcade of of great great players. I mean, so everybody thinks, oh, that's easy, that's an easy thing to do, but it's not as particularly easy to coach stars. I mean, you know, they they have big egos, they they like to their ice time, and there's a lot of reasons why that would not be an easy thing to do. But you were able to do it. Well. I was fortunate um, when I coached the top junior team in in the Montreal. 
I shared, well, an office with, no, I didn't share it, but in, in the regular offices, Toe Blake was just down the corridor. And I, I was only a young coach at that time before I was in my late twenties. And every Friday I would, I would try to see if I could get in to see him. And, uh, we, we had some great talks. Uh, he was, I'd, I'd ask him a ton of questions. I was always inquisitive. It's, uh, he was, he was always, he'd answer it, but he'd always say, well, you know, but you have to make your call on it. And, and one thing he always, he, he, I got to tell you two stories because he said, um, I was talking about some of the players, and, he, and he, 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 actually, people don't realize this, but in the summertime, Toe Blake became a, a baseball umpire. Imagine that in the summer. He was an umpire in baseball, and, he, and as a coach, he, he was in battling the referees all the time. But he told me, he said, um, when you're coaching uh, stars, and he had a ton of them in Montreal too, he said it's similar to a baseball player. He, he has the analogy. He said, um, I can take um, a lot of aggravation from a 300 hitter, none from a 200 hitter. <laughs> and, and he said, I love he that. said no, he said, in, and now he said, what you've got to do, Scotty, is when you get a great player, you, he's got to make sure that you know you're on his side. You're not trying to poke away at him. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's the way he, he kind of said it. And, and the, I got to tell you the other one that you'll laugh at, because I, I said to him, I said, yeah, we had five newspapers that even covered our five newspapers covered our junior team. And I was just starting out. I didn't, I was green as grass. And I said to him, told with the media coming in, you know, uh, and, and they asked me a lot of questions. And is there any advice you can give me, you know, about the media? And, and he said, no, you're talking to the wrong guy. Because <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what I think of the media. I said, well, what is it? He said, when you're winning, you don't need them. When you're losing, they can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, let's write that one down. That's a great one. <laughs> but he, Toe had a lot of sayings, like, you know, but I was lucky. I, I, I mean, I, I was most fortunate that I got with good players. And I, and I and I tried to I tried to as much as I could during the, the career, not to get any collision course with. with me. Always, when you're coaching, you get you're, there's something. Everything's not rosy, but uh, you know, like you got to be careful. But when you get great players, I mean, they have to be assured that that coach is doing everything he can in his power, uh, whether it's matchups, whether it's whatever it is. The, 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 those guys, I mean, everybody makes a difference on a team. It's a team game. In your third and fourth lines, they'll always come through in the, in the playoffs. You've seen that with uh, with the Penguins, even Mike Sullivan, the way, the way that when they won those cups, uh, people wonder, where do they get those players from? Well, the coach put them in the right position. And uh, But your, your, your top players, if you don't get your top players to play and, and you know, I think Bob Johnson was the late Bob Johnson was a similar philosophy, and I mean the way that that Bob Johnson handled. I mean, you know, people don't realize it, but when Brian Trotsky, when Craig Patrick signed uh, Brian Trotsky from the Islanders, it was a bit of a stormy session with uh, with with the Islanders. They he wasn't getting along too well. He wanted this. He, he I mean, he was a star in the, in the Islanders, and all of a sudden he's a kind of a fading star, and he comes to Pittsburgh and. I've always, you know, admired Brian because, you know, he took Yarmir Yager as a as a young player when when Bob was coaching, and I don't know, he just gravitated to to, to Yarmir, and he was a good influence on the beginning of his career, and and that's that's a crucial thing. And Brian Brian, you know, when you think about his career with the Penguins, he you know Mario was was, was one of the greatest players, if not the greatest, and then you got Ronnie Francis. And, and that trade now you got a, you got Trotsky, but he, you know, he, Brian went in there and, and and did such a good job, and you know he accepted. Some nights he played ten, twelve minutes. He didn't he didn't play his twenty that he used to play, uh, you know. So that's what you have to do with with guys that are, that are the respect a coach has to have for those kind of players is, is crucial. You mentioned Mario. I just wonder if you would talk about what impression he made on you outside of the obvious, you know, the fact that he was such a great player with his long reach and all the things he could do. But what else about him that maybe you didn't know until you actually, you know, were in a situation to coach him? Well, as coaching, as coaching junior, uh, the junior team again in Montreal, and there was a man that uh, named Bob Beal was his name, and he used to do exchange. He used to bring uh, teams from the province of Quebec 
and they played on Saturday afternoon. We played Saturday night in the Forum, the Canadians, our home games. And every every Saturday from January on, he'd bring a team from way up north in Quebec or Quebec City, uh, and he'd, he'd play a team in the Montreal uh, island of Montreal. And Mario was playing. Uh, he, I, I grew up in Verdun, and right across the, the aqueduct from us was Villamard. And that's where Mario grew up. And uh, they had youth teams. And all of a sudden, one Saturday, I'm watching these. I would say he's probably 12 or 13. Oh, my goodness. He was, I think he was close, close, to, close to six feet. And this guy gets on the ice. And, I mean, nobody else had the puck. I mean, you know, there's no, I mean, there's, the draft is only, what, about seven years later. I saw Mario play in the Montreal Forum. And I didn't think a lot about it. I just, you know, I looked at this guy playing. And, and then, of course, the next thing you know, he's playing for Laval. And, and the, only other, the next time I saw him play, I, I went to the Memorial Cup. And, and um, he was Laval represented Quebec. They didn't have a big tournament in the Memorial Cup, and they were they were not as good a team as as Ontario. I think uh, Kitchener or somebody or you know, Ottawa. Ottawa Sixty Sevens won the Memorial Cup that year, and that would be I think it would be the year before he was in. It. Maybe it's his draft year or the year before. But and then when I saw him play. Uh, you know, when he when he came in and played as a rookie, I mean, it was hard. But I I I just I don't know. I I, I have a lot of great memories of, of games that he played. Mario had some health issues uh, at at the peak of his career, and he had to and he couldn't practice like a normal player. I mean, it, it, it was just well, you know, the first year that uh, that they won when they, when Bob was coaching. I mean, he could hardly tie up his skates some night. You know, that that back problem was really an issue. And uh, of course, he had surgery. He had a, he overcome a lot of obstacles. So you know, but I, my biggest memory of Mario is the fact that he, he didn't have a, a normal hockey career that he could practice and play without pain. Amazing. Um, you mentioned Tom Barrasso, Scotty. I think it's interesting how things turn out. You you drafted him out of high school, Acton Boxborough High School. Yeah. And yeah. I remember when you drafted him. You know, I'm sure people probably raised a few eyebrows. You drafted him that high. Tom Barrasso uh, ends up, you know, falling out of favor in Buffalo. Tony Esposito Mm -hmm. acquires him, and it's the perfect situation for him in Pittsburgh because he was the kind of goalie who could could win games. He didn't worry about his goals against average. He had players who could score in front of him, and, and, uh, boy, was he a great goalie. He was drafted by a scout that passed away. He was a scout with Boston. He went to Buffalo to punch him like I heard him before I went to Buffalo. His name was Bucky Kane. He lived in Boston. He was the area scout, and he, he's, he's, he used to watch all high school, and he spotted Tommy Barrasso. said, there's not a goalie in the National Hockey League that can play the puck and shoot it like Tommy Barrasso. And that, he carried that, that style all the way through his career. That, you know, because there wasn't as many goalies. I mean, there's been goalies since him, like Brodeur has been so great uh, handling the puck. And, you know, of course, Jacques Plant was, was the, 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 the initiator of all that uh, many years ago. Jacques was the first goalie that ever came out and played the puck, you know. And, in fact, I saw, I think you sent me a, 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 the, a, the thing in 1977. Isn't that great? Yeah, they had the interview, and he said, uh, they asked him about that, and he said, well, I had one defenseman that couldn't turn to his left, <laughs> and the other couldn't turn to his right. So he said, I, I wouldn't play the puck. That's and, so funny. I, uh, I yeah, wasn't that, sure if he was kidding. or I think he was serious. Oh, no, no. No, no. He was that kind of a goalie. And uh, because I, I remember having him in St. Louis, and and a couple of times that first year he came out, he came out and got burned. And and one day he came to me because uh, Jock was a very confident guy, and he said, he said, uh, "I don't know if it's bothering you at all, but am I coming out too much? You think as a coach, am I coming? We didn't have a goalie coach in those days." And I said, "Jock, I, I really have a hard time answering it, but if you think enough of asking me the question, maybe you are." You know, <laughs> and that's the way I handled it. But no, that, that's that's true with Tommy Brasso. He 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 was. Uh, uh, I mean, he's he's under the radar as far as a Hall of Fame goalie. Uh, maybe because the only thing about him, maybe he didn't have the longevity of some, but uh, he, he was so instrumental on a team like ours that, uh, I mean, the, the, the most similar goalie I have to Tommy Barrasso is, uh, would be Grant Fuhrer. 
Grant Fuhrer was people don't they look at his numbers that, but Grant Fuhrer's on a high-powered offensive team, and he and we were a high-powered offensive team in Pittsburgh in those years, and and you know there's certain times in a game. You don't, maybe we didn't need the goalie for 60 minutes, but there's times in the game when you get a penalty, when you're trying to protect the lead, that that goalie has to come through for you, and that's what Tommy did. Scotty, could you imagine, or could you have imagined, that Pittsburgh would become the hockey hotbed that it is? You coached Mario and then, yeah. you know, and Yager, and then all of a sudden here comes uh, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. It's almost uncanny. It's like there's something well, in the water here or something. And that's why there's some players that, uh, there's some pretty good young youth players coming from Pittsburgh, you know, guy, you know, Assad and uh, Trocheck and those. Uh, is, is J.T. Miller from there too? Yes, or? he is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's because all of that and is, John Gibson. Uh, yeah, well, see, all of those players are players now because of the hockey interest, and that's when when the Penguins won, won their won their cups, uh, you know, back in the '90s, and now in the, in the uh, first decade of the, this, you know, this century. They, they, uh, you know, and now the other two that they won, you know, the last three, uh, three or four years ago. But you see that that that, that develops uh, interest, and, and the interest now will will be there. Al McNeil said this about you. He was the coach of the Canadians in '71 when they won the cup with uh, Ken Dryden, a rookie goalie at that time, or you know, his first year in the league. Uh, and of course, he was with the original Penguins in 1967. Al McNeil was. He said, "He said Scotty perfected it." You're talking about line changes in matchups. Whoever he's coaching against, he reads the situation so quickly and counters so well. You never have the wrong guys on the ice when Scotty's on the bench. Are coaches doing that as much today? Do you think? No, it's it's a lot different now. Uh, they may do it at home more. Uh, but it's so. I think the speed of the game and the shortness of the shifts has changed everything around. Like I mean, you know, because you know, and and then the tag up rule allows you to make make changes on on the fly a little bit easier. Like you can, you know, you can buy a little time for yourself, and and they, and they they're so the, the speed of the game changed everything, and and. Uh, you know, uh, they may be, I think what they do now more than anything, they match defense pairings. That's right. That, that's the easiest part to do because you only have two two players on, on defense, and one one is usually pretty close to your bench uh, for two periods. You know, like he's, he's, he's always there. I remember, and that, that's, what, that's when I was in Detroit, I used to think about how, I mean, that's a pretty good art for the defensemen have to know I mean, they have to know when they should change because they're the last line of, of defense except for the goalie. So uh, I, I don't think it's as prevalent now because of those factors. And, and you know, and I, I was always a stickler, and it didn't always work, but I, I, I used to try to harp on the players that were coming off the ice because uh, our shifts were longer than they are now, maybe nearly twice as long, that – that if you only got five strides left before you get to the bench, get as fat. Don't tell me you can't give me a little bit more speed to get off because th- that's a big thing now. But I, I see so much difference in the game that players now, um, when they're when they're a little a little fatigued, uh, we we used to always harp that you can't come off the ice when the other team has the puck. Well, that's no longer a fact because players now you'll see them and and, and but I I still think teams that change change on the fly better than another team it's still an edge i mean it's it's still something that you know maybe teams could work on it a bit because it it is important i mean you how many times have you seen a goal go in when all of a sudden somebody left the ice at the wrong time but uh, defense pairings um i did i didn't do it before i think the first coach that really did that was al arbor uh, he was a stickler. He didn't worry as uh, like he wasn't matching up front as much. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of planning, and it's a, you know, you're 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 watching your bench all the time, and uh, some nights you don't feel like doing it, and and, and well, you got to watch not, the other bench too, don't you? You have to. Watch oh yeah, yeah. You have to know who's coming on, and 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 there's ways that you don't. I I never wanted. I tried to not let the other team know who was coming on next. That that was one of the things I tried. How did you do that? <laughs> well, you go in rotation one, two, three, one, two, three, four, whatever you are, and then all of a sudden, partway through the first period, or you might even do it in the second. All of a sudden, the the other team is following your rotation, and you may only get it once or twice in a period, or even in you know you may only get it once or twice. But it is true that if you get 
I mean, there are certain players that, that can't play against certain players, and and uh, but the the tired players are the ones that are vulnerable to be making a mistake. And usually, a tired player that makes a mistake uh, can result in a in a in a goal, you know, against you if if you're not careful. What are your impressions of Mike Sullivan? Oh, I like Mike a lot. I met him. I mean, you know, it's, it's the Hawks didn't have a spot but i mean he he came in he came in between jobs and he 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 was very i i could see how i mean i i got to know him when he he would do the pre-scouting uh for the 15 uh the 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 cup they won in uh and it was 13 or 15 but he he did the pre he did all the pre-scouting it was 15 i guess the cup and uh, i could see his reports but you know, he, he. I think with Mike, he's he's had so he's had experience. He's he's not an inexperienced coach. I mean, he. You know, and some of the experiences are tough. You don't have good players, I and mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. So he's 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 compared himself to both like good players and then and and some teams that didn't have a big chance. So I think he's um, what he does is he puts a pretty good uh, spin on the fact that. Uh, if a young player coming in or a player like that hasn't maybe uh, reached his niche yet uh, all of a sudden is put into he thrusts players into player into into situations that makes them succeed because they get a chance to get confidence Scotty you've been involved in hockey for 6 decades and you've never let the game get ahead of you you're always ahead of it or at least up up to speed and uh, in technology I remember you telling me a story when you're in Pittsburgh about in St. Louis you you were the first, maybe the first guy to use videotape. You took a camera and a tape recorder upstairs at the St. Louis Arena, and you basically videoed practice, if I'm not mistaken, was the story you told me. Uh, yeah. And and then you were the first guy I knew that had a satellite dish. Uh, and and then uh, a couple of years ago, I'm up in the box at Tampa, and you're showing me your iPad, and now you're on Twitter and Facebook. I got my sling my sling box actually. I just that's right, sling box. I forgot about that. I just bought a new one that I, because I. I have a dish that I want to make sure I can watch on. Now now I know how to watch it on my TV. So, yeah, my sling box helps me a lot. Yeah. And you were watching games, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were watching your sling box on a cruise. You were on a cruise <laughs> ship, right? Is that right? Yeah, we had to find a signal. But a friend of mine that was in, uh, interested in hockey, we did go. We went to one, uh, one of the islands, and all of a sudden we got into somewhere. They were offering Wi-Fi. We had to pay for it. But we watched a couple of periods. That's right. <laughs> the analytics now. I mean, I I I, I get them from from the the Hawks analytics guy. It's uh, it's hard to analytics in hockey are tough. To, I mean, because you know you're playing you're playing three or four games in six nights sometimes, and uh, you know you you don't have a lot of t- a lot of spare time to go over them. But they're they're coming pretty big in 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 uh, in the league. The analytics, you know. How do you, do you do you like them? I mean, is it something you think you would have uh, used? I I think it 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 give it confirms what you. I like the eye test first, but I I do I do believe that the analysts can help you. Um, you know, you can they, they you can they can give you assurance that what you saw is what is what you believe. You're not you don't have to think about it again, and and it can confirm. And uh, I think yeah, I think there's quite a. I mean, I, I don't think alone. I think analytics alone. I, I mean, I'm not at that stage yet that I would say uh, because, you know, so, some statistics, I mean, some statistics are more are so much more meaningful than others, and you have to sort it. So you need somebody to sort through. I mean, you know, the analytics are, are, are good, but you have to sort through which ones are more uh, more effective than others. You uh, blew my mind when I was at your house a couple of summers ago, and you showed me the books that you kept. You kept your own statistical information in these little books when you were coaching the Montreal Canadiens. You opened one up, and there was Guy Lafleur. You had his plus-minus. I don't even think anybody even did plus-minus back then, but you were doing it for your own yeah. players. Well, I kept the the, the yeah, I used to get the sheet from the league, and then it took a lot of work. I mean, yeah, because that, I got that from Toe Blake, actually, because I remember one year – uh, Montreal, I know the year was 1964. Ted Lindsay had just made a comeback with Detroit. Canadians were still a pretty good team. They hadn't won the cup in Chicago, won in 61, and then Toronto won three in a row. 
and then all of a sudden Detroit come into and won first place the next year. And I used to go up. They would, they'd play those teams uh, 14 times, uh, seven seven home, seven away. We're in the seven six games, you know, the original six. And I remember one year I went up to see him on the Friday, and he's got all these books out, and he's got all these papers, and and he and he, it was really funny because he's. They had played Detroit eleven times that year, and they and they had only won three out of the eleven. They had three games left. It was so. It's probably sometime in maybe late February, and he and he he was was going over the whole thing, and he said to me, uh, "Are you coming to the game tomorrow night?" It was like it was a Friday. I went to all the Saturday night games because we didn't play till Sunday. I said, "Oh yeah, I'm going to go." And he knew I was young enough. I was young, I knew a lot of the players on the Canadians. Some of them had even played junior for us. And I and one in particular, I used to go to the Forum Coffee Shop after the Canadians practiced, and uh, you know I was coaching the junior team. But and I knew all the guys, John Ferguson, Ralph Backstrom, all those guys. And then he said, "You're coming tomorrow night." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, your friend." He used to he used to tease me a bit. He said, "Your friend Terry Harper." You better watch him tomorrow night because he's going to be sitting right on the end of the bench with me. <laughs> you know, and I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, look at this. He said, I tried to figure out how we lost eight games. And he said, he just can't handle the speed of the, the he's, a, he's a good, effective defenseman. But he, he was saying that to me, you know, and I said, gee, how does he know all that? And he, so, you know, he used to pour over the, the, the league did not give him to you, but they gave you who was on the ice and then you had to figure it out. And uh, so that's when I started with the junior. I, I used to keep the books uh, because I wanted, I, I mean, we didn't, in junior, we didn't even, we didn't, I mean, I used to have somebody sitting in the stands and marking down when goals were scored, who was on the ice for us and who was on for the other team. And uh, that, that, that's how I started. Scotty, one time you went to a symposium with Phil Jackson, I believe, and there were some other coaches. Uh, Bill Purcells might have been there. I don't know. You told me the story. You, you guys were on television together, and it was like a panel thing, and you said, and this sounds like the most simple thing, and yet it's more complex if you really think about it. You said, you're successful when you make it difficult for the opposition to score, <laughs> which I thought was like, it's like brilliant in its simplicity because it doesn't mean just playing defense. No. It could mean possessing the puck, not taking yeah. penalties, discipline, those kinds of things, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, the that's that's why uh, I, I've I've watched a lot of uh, a lot of hockey now, and and I, I mean, you know, we talk about analytics. We we use them a little bit in Detroit, but not not the extent that these guys now. But the, uh, like for instance, we used to track our defense, and and it was just it, it just couldn't believe Nick Lidstrom, uh, like when Nick Lidstrom had the puck and he made a play. Uh, Detroit kept the puck. <laughs> it was amazing. His next play, you know, I'm sure it's like that all the great players. I mean, you know, you take a player like a Mario Lemieux or, or any of these great players today, Sidney Crosby, when they get the puck and, and they have to do something with it other than put it in the net, they, they usually put it, Pittsburgh keeps the puck, you know, and so that that's how you play. When you have those kind of players, you're not asking them. You're not asking them to to get rid of the puck and, and just defend. What you're what they're doing is they're they're defending with their attack, and that's that's what I admire the most about those guys. You helped the Penguins in ninety ninety one win the cup, and you weren't even on the ice or a coach because you used to talk to the supervisors of officials between games, and you had a relationship with the referees going back, and maybe not always a good one, but in any event, you could go to those guys. And kind of say, hey, you know, what, this happened last game. Well, what are we going to do about it? And they would, and invariably, it seemed to have an effect. And I, I found it to be an effective way to make sure during the playoffs that you were getting the right fair calls. Well, some, sometimes they're not aware of it, but I mean, I see the, the guys now. It's funny. I see Billy McCreary. They had a big, big thing here in Buffalo. They had a training camp for all the uh, referees and linesmen. Seventy of them, in fact. But uh, no, I see them now, and we. I, I always, I try. Like, there's, there's some that you have a better rapport with than others. Some are more communicative, and you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I always, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's important. I mean, to, that I just wanted them to know that if they were, if they were doing the right thing, they knew about it. If they were not doing the right thing, they knew about it. And uh, I had a lot of fun with them. But sometimes, you know, you can, you can over, overstretch it. You got to be careful. Uh, 
uh, I know one year, I was, like I, 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 I don't know. The good, the good referees, you sort of, you sort of get used to them, and and uh, you know, you you, you try to. You, there's some you know you can, you can maybe keep on their toes, and there's other ones don't 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 get them a little bit, uh, don't get them a little bit concerned uh, about what you're doing because they they can also, they can also they have they have to make judgments, you know, and it's not easy. Another thing about you, Scotty, that uh, I always found really intriguing is your your uh, eye for collection. You love to collect cards, and you have an incredible collection of baseball cards, and you love baseball like a, as much as anything, it seems to me. But uh, you have a fantastic uh, collection of baseball cards and other things that you like to collect. Well, we don't throw stuff away. That's right. I don't know where I got that from, uh, but uh, pro- probably a long time ago when you're growing up. I, I grew up in Montreal, and I I mean, we played all sports in those days, but I grew up in, and, and became a baseball fan on the fact that uh, our team in the AAA League, uh, in the International Baseball League, I was there when Jackie Robinson broke in into the minors. Uh, before he went to Brooklyn, Jackie Robinson played for the Montreal Royals, and he was the forerunner, of course, uh, for black players. And, and then we had... I, I just, I'm intrigued now. The thing I enjoy the most now is... Um, I, I I don't know I I got I like to watch young people that aren't there yet like uh, I like to watch um, I like to know what what players are coming up in the draft for two or three years from now um, I, I was I was at our golf course just a quick story I was at our golf course the other day and uh, they had the, the Buffalo District all the top uh, amateur and a couple of my friends of mine they're really good young players I mean you know they're they're the best of, of about five different clubs. And there's this boy that plays at our club. I'm, I'm, I'm living on a course. He's 13 years old. He's 13 years old, and he's and he's and he's and he's playing like in the low 70s. Ugh. And he's he's playing he's playing golf <laughs> with all these guys that are in their 30s and 20s and 40s. And I, I mean, I'm, I, I these phenoms, I like to see them, like you know. And uh, I, I like to go back. That's why I said I saw Mario play. I saw Sid play. The first time I ever saw Sid, Sid, Sidney Crosby play was in Memorial Cup, and I was I was kind of pulling for him because his team his team wasn't going to win, but uh, you know he was young. He was before the draft, and uh, he had put up all those good numbers in junior. And they uh, they were playing in London. London always had a great team, and they were taking advantage uh, in some situations. But I, I like to watch players that are not there yet. I think I got that because I followed AAA baseball, and uh, I, I like to know who's who's the who's the next one coming up, you know. And it's 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 interesting because you 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 watch them and you see them before they start to be stars, and then when they become stars, you, see, you try to go back and remember what they were like, you know. Now you've talked before about the change of the uh, the ice with the red line being taken out, the end yeah. zones being made bigger. Uh, you know, you always you like to talk about the distance between the goal line and the end boards, yeah, and things like that. You're you, you're always analyzing that stuff. Mm-hmm. They made like a lot of ex players that I mean they played a long played some time ago. They I, I'm always fearful. Like, and some of them are really they feel that the center ice has to go back in, but uh, the the rink is you know 200 by 85. The players are big. Uh, you, you see some situations now when you get four skaters against four skaters. There isn't much room, and and you know, and and and, and it's going to be interesting to see defense. Like there are there are some defensemen. The Buffalo's got a young defenseman, Dolan. I've seen him play in the, in the training camp. Uh, he's got a lot of great things about him. I think he's going to be a really top-notch, you know, young defenseman. He likes to carry the puck. And that's something that some teams bypass now. They don't. They don't have to carry the puck. They can throw it from their own. Uh, they can pass it from their goal line up to the far blue line. That that's the only part of the game. So, there's some games where it becomes like a, a ping pong game where the puck is moving too fast. But some people want to take the red line out. I'm I'm pretty fearful that if they take it out, we'll go back to the. You don't see trapping now. You know, you don't see like you had before. So. I mean, this, the the only thing I, I I keep wondering to myself is, is the is the is, is the end zones are so big now, and the coaches have, have have mastered the fact 
that uh, that the, the they collapse down low. There's five players that you know the thinking, but they were scoring enough goals. But I'm trying to picture now, like the Gretzkys or Mario Lemieux or Lafleurs, where would they play on teams now? Would they, do you want them blocking shots like all the forwards would do? But you know Crosby, Crosby, and these other great players of all, and, and uh, McDavid now, and these guys have all have all mastered that. So um, I, I think hockey's at the point now where we've made so many changes, and so many we we made a lot of changes, uh, uh, but we haven't made as many of late, and it's probably the right thing to do. I, I I'm fearful if you make change. I I wouldn't want to see any rule changed without a trial. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in in some like it's hard to try. I mean, because you know the skill level is different in in the lower leagues. But I I I just don't like to I don't like to sit in a room and figure out a rule. This oh this could work, and then you 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 implement it and it doesn't work. You know. Right. You know what Sidney Crosby suggested to me the other day. He thinks yeah. that they should review headshots. Like, because what happened to the Penguins last year yeah. in the playoffs well, with Tom Wilson broke Zach Aston Reese's jaw with a shot to the head and you know it affected the outcome of the series you know what i mean like i think i think sid's on on the thing there's there's some accidents but there's some when it's not an accident and it's a it's an and it's an, an intentional hit to the head uh it's got no place in the game no place scotty before you go i want you to just tell me a story a story about how you would uh catch players uh staying out too late i i'm uh, <laughs> there are some great ones that i it, Give me an example of how you would keep an eye on players to make sure they were getting home in time. At, uh, well, no, the only time I did it was uh, I was coaching in Detroit and uh, or in uh, St. Louis. We had a game in Detroit. We had a, we had one of our good teams. Maybe the second or third year that we went to the finals, we were in a bit of a slump. We lost to Detroit. They were a very ordinary team, five to one. Uh, we were going to Montreal two days later to play the Canadians, and we had a lot of ex-Canadians. We never did very well in Montreal. They had a powerhouse anyways, but I wanted to I – was, I, I, I was getting tired of losing the, uh, by by three and four goals. So I t- I, we lost in Detroit, and I said, this is it. I said, even though it's only a Thursday night, we're, we're taking the train down tomorrow. And I said, it's two nights before. We're going to have a curfew. I put, I put a curfew of 11.30. And I said, uh, and 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 this is one time that we're going to implement it because a lot of times you say you're going to do a curfew, you don't do anything. And I went, I went back to the hotel. I was actually I was with uh, my assistant at the time, Claude Ruel. Uh, uh, no, that was the, the Blues. That was Montreal. He knows about it because it was in Detroit. But so we had nobody. I had nobody with me, and I went back. Um, I, I took I took a hockey stick back to the back to the hotel. You, you know, we used to travel a little bit. Um, maybe I traveled a little bit with Dan Kelly, the late Dan Kelly, because he was a radio or TV guy too. But we, we didn't, you know, the coach was on his own. I went back to the hotel with a stick and I give it, I knew the belt captains and I, I said, look, there's some guys here that are not going to be coming in after 1130 for sure. I know they're going to be. So I said, you know, I'll give you some, I'll give you, if you get some autographs for me. So I paid them <laughs> for some autographs and they put the time down and, Next day, I brought the stick to the to the to the rink at practice, and I said, "You know, we didn't have a very good game, but I had a pretty good night. I got six autographs, <laughs> and I said it cost me cost me sixty dollars. But in those days, we could do what we want. I said, but I'm going to turn it into a hundred dollars each. And I, I, actually, the funny part was uh, the players got a bit of a kick out of it that it happened, and Doug Harvey was playing for us at that 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 year, and uh, he he was sort of like my I used to lean on him a lot. And he 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 was with he was a player too, and he said, "Well, coach, you got him pretty good. You should make it 200." <laughs> but we kept it at 100, and and we didn't. It was to their it, it went into a fund anyway, so it was their own money that they could use whatever they wanted. But that, they got a kick out of that one. <laughs> was, Doug, was Doug Harvey the first great offensive defenseman? Oh, he was the best one. He he was a great. He was he is the best defenseman that played uh, two ways. Uh, like nobody rushed like he did. Tim Horton did a little bit, but they didn't have the finish uh, of of a Doug Harvey. And there was the odd one later, but no, nah, he he and he was so good defensively. His passing skills would be second to none. Really? Pass the puck on a stick is as easy, um, you know, as anybody ever did. 
You told me once that uh, we were at a game in Munch in Boston. It was prior to the Penguins playing the uh, uh, Bruins in the playoffs, uh, and you said, "You said I, I don't not so sure that offensive defensemen are as effective in the playoffs." And I thought that was a really interesting mm, yeah. thing you raised, and it was. I think you were implying that those guys tend to take risks, and maybe yeah. it's not the best thing. No, you've got to be careful. Well. I think I think thinking about the Pittsburgh team that won the two cups, you know, I mean Latang missed the second year, but they they didn't they, like they, they had a, like sort of a no name defense core, but they got the puck out of their own end. Yep, uh, that's one thing they did. They got it up and they had races in the neutral zone, and he had some good. You get they were not easy to play against because they they eliminated a lot of mistakes uh, back in their own end and. Uh, and that's still where you can lose a lot of games if you've got too much puck handling or too much, tur- I mean, turnover. The teams are watching turnovers now. What do you uh, think of uh, guys playing 30 minutes now, defensemen? You know, like, like Eric Carlson plays a lot of minutes. Like, like do you, do you, do you Yeah, think- well, if you get a good one, I mean, he's not having to go end-to-end all the time. and he's, Their passing skills are so good. I mean, yeah. that, that's what they are, like, you know. Uh, you, they're the difference makers now. If you get a defenseman like those, uh, you know, there's a few around now that can move that puck. And they're, I mean, a defenseman to me has to be. How does he? How is he? How does he play at the offensive blue line? That's important. And what happens when he gets the puck in his own end? What does he do with it? Penguins found a good guy. I don't know if you saw him, Scotty, at the prospect camp. This kid, Yuso Ricola. From Finland. He's 24 years old. He's going to be a really good player. So they miss players from Europe because there's not as heavy scouting. I mean, they have scouts, but the, it's, 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 it's tougher. I mean, it's tougher to miss a play. It's, it's pretty, they're not going to miss players in North America because they have so many. They're screened and they're scouted. So, 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 I mean, they'll be the odd sleeper, but they'll be more out of Europe. You know, mm-hmm. because it's uh, you know it's not as easy to see them. Uh, you know, they don't play in they play in different leagues. You know. Yep. So you're heading down to Florida in uh, another couple well, of weeks. A couple of weeks. I'll see you down there. Many thanks to Scotty Bowman for giving us so much time to talk hockey. And uh, before we go, a couple of stories. One that uh, Phil Bork has told me on a couple of occasions. It's really amazing. Right after the Penguins won the Cup in '92, Bork got a phone call. He answered the phone, and it was Scotty Bowman on the other end. And he said to Phil Bork, I just want to tell you that I underestimated you. Basically, not in these exact words. He said, I didn't really appreciate what a good player you were until I saw you play in the playoffs. And I want to apologize for that and tell you that you proved me wrong. And I think you did a great job to help us win the Stanley Cup. Obviously, Bork was flabbergasted, but I think it's an example of the kind of guy Scotty Bowman is. And maybe that flies a bit in the face of the narrative that Scotty is an impersonal guy who really doesn't care about his players, something that uh, you know people said about him over the years. Another uh, story about Scotty Bowman that stands out from 92 for me was uh, when the Penguins celebrated the Stanley Cup at Three River Stadium. Scotty got up on the stage, and he went through every single player on the roster and talked about what each of those individual players did to help the Penguins win the Stanley Cup. And he did it all off the top of his head. It was amazing and an indication of the photographic mind that Scotty Bowman truly does have. He really is one of the great hockey minds of all time, and we're so happy that we had an opportunity to work with him in Pittsburgh, and we continue to have the opportunity to talk with him. He's 85 years old. His legend will live forever. Thanks again for listening to It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.